Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hi, I'm Brace Merriman, and you're listening to the Homeland Lab podcast. There's a level of opacity surrounding so much related to homelessness, and perhaps no area is more shrouded and misunderstood than the laws that guide where and when unhoused people can eat, sleep, and live in public spaces. To get one perspective about where the law and homelessness intersect, I recently sat down with Brianne Schuster of the ACLU of Washington to speak about what laws guide municipal responses to homelessness and how the ACLU works with cities to ensure those laws are adhered to. So I have been um, interested in issues surrounding homelessness for quite some time, um, really since probably preceding law school, but I, I got more involved when I was in law school. Um, So I went to Seattle University School of Law, and they have a homeless rights advocacy practicum. Um, The first semester they started actually was uh, my year um, that I was in the practicum. And we did really a study of a few different topics um, in the practicum. So studying, trying to do kind of like the first statewide study of a lot of issues that are really at the forefront of both addressing homelessness from kind of a policy and practical standpoint, um, and then looking at what cities are doing from um, kind of a constitutional legal standpoint. And so that was sort of my first exposure um, as far as like getting in depth with the data and actually meeting community members that are unhoused and living outside. um, And, you know, in hopes of of gathering data, seeing where gaps in data are, and seeing um, what we you know, potential solutions, I guess. Um, so my um, interest is really sparked by by doing that practicum. Um, and then I was also at actually the ACLU at the same time in the policy advocacy mm-hmm. side of the office. Um, and we were looking at a number of um, panhandling ordinances at the time. Mm-hmm. And then the city of Burien um, had also passed an ordinance, and I don't remember all of the details exactly, but there were a number of problems with it. Um, And one of them was that the ordinance had initially banned people uh, from smelling bad in public. Um, And it was was obviously targeted at people that were unhoused. Uh, Other things were, I think it was, um, I I don't remember the exact language, which would be (laughs) important to look at, Uh, but things like brushing your teeth or washing or you know, bathing in public um, were prohibited by the ordinance as well, and so it was it was clearly targeted at conduct that people that were unhoused uh, engaged in in public space, um, and so I got to kind of do research for the ACLU on that issue. Um, we testified at the city council meeting, um, and so that's kind of what brought me. Uh, into into being really excited and wanting to do more work on this issue. Hmm. And so, so how does ACLU operate in this space? Is it because I know the yeah. ACLU from like <laughs> filing lawsuits and amicus briefs and that sort of thing, but you're both helping. It sounds like you're helping shape policy, and then when when cities maybe go off the rails a little bit, helping to correct it. 
Yeah, so our office tries to, as much as possible, utilize a sort of integrated advocacy approach. And so we have um, experts in in specific fields that are more sort of policy-focused and are trying to get policy solutions to a lot of the problems that we're facing. Um, We also have a litigation team who focuses more on... um, you know, on litigation, (laughs) on sort of the legal remedies. Uh, But we we try to work together as much as possible um, on on individual cases and individual policy um, things. For for listeners to the podcast, people who are coming to this interested in the issues around homelessness, a lot of them probably don't have any strong basis in law like like you do. Could you maybe just give a high-level understanding of kind of the the civil rights law around homelessness, the constitutional law around homelessness? I actually think it's quite simple. So people that are living outside get all of the same rights, have all the same rights that um, someone living in a brick-and-mortar home has, right? So the uh, But what we've seen in the past, you know, 10, 10 or so years is an increase in um, due to a lack of affordable housing largely, but other factors as well, an increase in homelessness and an increase in visible homelessness. Mm -hmm. So an increase in people that are forced to erect tents or erect other forms of shelter uh, outside on public property. And while we've seen that sort of visible increase, we've also seen cities utilize uh, the criminalization of homelessness. So utilizing ordinances, policies, uh, or codes to sort of in essence, address address the fact that people are living outside. Um, and so high level, <laughs> what ends up happening when we enforce those types of ordinances or policies is that it's often done in a way that's infringing on people's rights. Mm-hmm. So uh, no, no, I never heard a city council say, hey, we're going to criminalize right. homelessness. <laughs> what, what do those policies and ordinances look like? Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great question. So... They really vary. Um, some of the most popular, um, I, I say popular, but some of the most common ordinances that we've seen in Washington state, and it is a nationwide trend, but I'm not quite as familiar with the exact statistics mm-hmm. nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have seen throughout the state cities utilizing ordinances, for example, that um, prohibit sleeping or camping outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you might imagine, if you have... Uh, an apartment or a brick-and-mortar home, that ordinance is not going to penalize you. Um, it's only really targeted and penal- at penalizing people that don't have anywhere else to go. Um, and so that's one form of criminalization. Another common um, form of criminalization might be prohibiting people from asking for money, so prohibiting panhandling or begging. Um, and again, it might the types of ordinances or the types of um, laws that are being enacted vary to some degree depending on the depending on the city and the, or the municipality. Um, but the out, the outcome is that it's it's basically targeted at a certain conduct that people, by virtue of the fact that they are unhoused and poor and living in public space, um, have no option but to engage in that behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's specifically things that you or I um, do, right? Everyone has to sleep. Everyone right. has to go to the bathroom. Right. Um, everyone has to ask for help at some point. Sure. Um, you have to exist in a space. And so 
But unfortunately, what's happening is we're seeing municipalities um, utilize the criminalization or prohibit basically these types of functions that people have to engage in um, as a way to address homelessness. So those are those those are kind of like basic human functions. Mm-hmm. Does it get messier as we get into like smoking bans or, or alcohol in parks, those types of issues? Does it get a little bit messier in that in that realm or is it still clear cut in that case? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, and we have seen an increase in a lot of um, or we have seen ordinances like that too, right, that are prohibiting litter, I think is a, a popular one, or smoking in a public place. And those definitely do have a disproportionate, or I would imagine um, a disproportionate impact on people living outside. Sure. Um, same with you know a public drinking law, because you have nowhere but the public sphere to engage in that type of activity. Um, I think the law is a little bit less clear cut on sort of the limitations um, to some degree of what municipalities can and cannot do. Um, and there, as far as I know, hasn't been quite as much litigation surrounding those. I think it's kind of an evolving area. Sure, um, sure. And, and I'll admit just uh, not quite as much of my, <laughs> um, I'm not quite as familiar uh, with with the landscape throughout the state yeah. uh, as far as what's going on in that area. You know, we're seeing homelessness as a visible phenomenon explode. So are you are you bringing more legal claims as a result of that? I, as different cities are wrestling with this, I've, I've been in this, those council <laughs> chambers, and, you know, it can get pretty ugly sometimes mm-hmm. in terms of the public comment and the pressure that the politicians are under um, to do, quote-unquote, do something about sure. this issue. Are you finding an uptick in, in your, quote-unquote, business, which I'm sure you don't <laughs> think of it that way, but um, that, that you're seeing more and more of these legal claims as cities are wrestling with this issue? I, I mean, I think that's an, so I don't, I think yes and no, um, or maybe the simple answer is yes. And I I think part of it is that because we've seen an increase in um, criminalizing ordinances, Mm -hmm. we have seen an increase in litigation. Mm -hmm. Litigation is certainly not the only strategy that I think advocates are attempting to employ. Um, And you know, there's a lot of other advocacy going on that's not just litigation. So we have seen probably an increase in lawsuits in the past, um, you know, decade or so, but they have also been going on, you know, long before that. It's not, the this specific type of criminalization is somewhat new, um, but we've always had on the books, right, vagrancy laws or anti-loitering laws. And so it's just, it's, it's looking different now, um, and lawsuits are looking different, um, but it, it's not a completely new issue. And how much how much of the law is happening at the state level versus at a, at a national level? And because you mentioned both civil rights and constitutional rights, and those, as a layperson, both of those sound to me like federal oh, yeah. issues. But, um, you know, I, I was down in Skid Row, I think I mentioned before mm-hmm. we turned the microphone on, and there, there's tents all over sidewalks. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so much so that you, you cannot walk down the sidewalk. You have to walk in the street. I'm not seeing that here. I don't see that in some of the other cities that I'm familiar sure. with. Are there different laws at play, or is it just that the the litigation of the legal frameworks haven't caught up in each state yet? Yeah, I think, so I, I think there's a couple things going on there. I think one is that um, 
There are federal protections for, for unhoused folks and for people living outside, but there are also state constitutional protections. So, for example, in Washington, we actually have our Fourth Amendment, or equivalent to Fourth Amendment, it's Article One, Section 7, of our state constitution is in some ways actually more protective than mm. the Fourth Amendment. Mm. Um, and so there was a recent case uh, a few weeks ago, um, State v. Pippin, where the court, and it was in the Court of Appeals here in Washington State, um, and it was about a guy who was unhoused, living outside, and the police came in um, and searched his tent. And so the court there kind of explained that Washington state constitution protects people even if they're living outside, even if their home is a tent or a tarp, it still gives them constitutional protection Mm -hmm. from um, unreasonable, the invasion of their privacy. Um, So part of it, so there are different state constitutions and different state statutes um, that would, you know, maybe look a little bit different in California than in Washington than in uh, New York, for example. Um, But the federal constitution would apply throughout the country. The other part of your question or what I'm hearing is that in some places it seems like there's kind of more visible, there's more people that are maybe living outside in a visible area. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess if, if, it's, if it's going back to a rootedness yeah. in a federal guideline, it mm-hmm. would seem like it would manifest itself similarly right. a, a, across each state of, lines. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that is something interesting that we've been we've seen in the Pacific Northwest particularly. Um, so homelessness in the U.S. has, has you know, gone up and down. Mm-hmm. But across the Pacific Northwest, for the most part, it's been increasing pretty steadily for the past few years. And it's been particularly increasing in the number of folks that are living outside. Um, so in some other states, and I, you know, I wish I could tell you the exact uh, cause of, of why, but in states like New York and other states on the East Coast, they have a much smaller a smaller proportionate proportion of their unhoused population is living outside. Okay. So living in tents, living um, on public space. And so I think part of it is it, it does look different from state to state. Um, and I think part of it is the way that states respond and utilize their resources and allocate resources to okay. dealing with the crisis. Okay, so it's not necessarily the legal framework. It may be the policy response from elected officials and what have you. I, I think that's definitely a big part of it. Okay. Um, and, and L.A. Yeah. is quite nice and sunny and beautiful <laughs> versus spending the, the winter outdoor in rainy Seattle may not be the most appealing thing. That's, that is possible. <laughs> um, and I think there, you know, there has been litigation in specifically um, in, in L.A., a lot of litigation actually right. about, about um, the rights of people living outside there. But, uh, but I think... Overall, it's a trend that we're seeing um, in part because people don't have anywhere else to go. Thank you for the the, the background. Um, Because I think that one of the questions that that I've always struggled with around this issue is when two sets of civil rights bump up against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think I've explained to you, I'm a landscape architect. We do a lot of work in the right-of-way. And one one group of citizens that we're always concerned about are people who are in wheelchairs or Absolutely. who are blind and kind of have ADA protections. They have civil rights protections under the ADA. Um, so how do you, or, or is the law clear on when those two conditions bump up against each other? Yeah, I think, so from, 
so I kind of, I guess I think about it and I, I want to address your question. So, but um, maybe just to back it up a little bit, Please, I think yeah. from a, I tend to look at that first from a practical standpoint, right? And which is that a lot of people, um, when they're setting up a place to live uh, outside, it's, you know, most, a lot of people don't want to be on a public right of way where somebody needs to get their wheelchair through on the sidewalk, right? Like that's, that's not the preferred place for them to necessarily set up a place. They would rather have somewhere where it's, you know, provides some shelter from the elements, where they have some sort of privacy, um, where other people are living and they feel community mm -hmm. and safety, security and stability. Um, and so I think just from a practical standpoint, um, that, that isn't often where uh, people want to be. Um, and if we can provide them places that are, you know, at least interim solutions, obviously, if we can provide them housing, that would be even better. Um, but if we can provide interim spaces for people to set up their stuff safely and know that they can they can leave it there and that it's safe there and that they are safe there, um, I think that that's, you know, the easiest solution, right? Um, another solution uh, is just asking people to move. <laughs> Um, but from a sort of legal standpoint, um, we've often seen, so it's, it's interesting actually to hear your perspective because a lot of times when I hear the perspective, it's kind of um, a, a pretext for doing what a government ultimately wants to do, which is not have unhoused people in that area. Um, it would, it's, but I, I can, um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm happy to keep, <laughs> keep digging into it. <laughs> I, I think it does. I've been in these council chambers when constituents stand up and they'll say something like, we need to ban the homeless. Is that even <laughs> legally possible? <laughs> uh, legally, <laughs> I mean, it would definitely violate the Constitution if you targeted a group of uh, a particular demographic of folks to ban from a city. Um, I think to some degree that is the one of the consequences of criminalization in some regards, right? Um, it's not that you're you're not by effectively banning all activity that people can engage in, you are in some ways effectively saying uh, you don't we don't want you in the city. We don't want you here. Um, but but no, yeah, you can't just get rid of an entire population. Uh, legally. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be your answer. Um, if, if that isn't a valid policy response, it, it feels like, as you've been saying, that cities spend a lot of time and resources trying to, quote unquote, solve homelessness through enforcement mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, from, from your perspective, what policy goals are those cities trying to achieve, if any, and how successful is that enforcement mechanism to, to achieve those goals? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've seen that uh, enforcing criminalization um, of unhoused people is incredibly ineffective, right? Um, for one, uh, we can just look at the number of people that are unhoused, and that's continued to increase as we're increasing all of these ordinances that criminalize their existence. Um, it is so expensive. Um, so I think there was the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty did a study that found that it was three times more expensive to put someone in jail than to give them shelter for a night. 
And then the Homeless Rights Advocacy Practicum a few years ago did a study of a number of cities in Washington, and they similarly found that cities are spending, depending on depending on the city, but millions of dollars enforcing these, just the criminal component. So there's a civil component to these or, to some ordinances, and some of them are criminal, mm-hmm. and they effectively both criminalize homelessness. And I'm happy to explain how that works uh, in a little bit, but but that it's incredibly expensive to number one put police officers out there to enforce these. Um, to do the actual physical enforcement itself. So, for example, in the city of Seattle, we know that the city has spent millions of dollars um, enforcing their sweeps policy and practice. Um, so it's incredibly expensive, and it's not working. And a lot of times it's based on this assumption that, um, on two kind of faulty assumptions. One, right, that people somehow, when they are poor or when they lose their housing, that they become just dangerous and less human somehow, that they're they're like a different person than they were a month ago when they were able to pay their rent. And how much of that is just like taboo? And... Exactly, exactly. And I think, so I think we've kind of, um, we've marginalized this community and made up sort of these assumptions about what they're actually like when they're, they're just people mm-hmm. um, that are, that are economically in a really tough um, spot right now. Um, and they're also built off, the these ordinances are, are also built off the assumption that we can stop somebody somehow from engaging in life-sustaining behavior if we just punish them for doing it. Um, and so unless we're, for example, uh, I, I definitely understand cities' desire uh, to not want people going into the bathroom outside in public, right? Um, and I think most people that are in the position of having to do that would prefer as well <laughs> to have a private restroom of their own that they can go in. But if we're just going to punish people for engaging in, in that behavior that they have to, um, rather than providing alternatives like public restrooms or just a place for them to use that's accessible, uh, and then we're not going to actually solve the underlying issue. And we're certainly not going to address the housing crisis by punishing people for going to the bathroom outside. So you mentioned kind of a, an interesting dynamic between the criminal side of things and the civil side of things. Can you yeah. draw that out a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I explained it very clearly before, so I'm <laughs> glad we can come back to it. Um, but I think when we, so when we talk about criminalization, I think a lot of times... Uh, people are, it, because we are so familiar with what the criminal justice system mm-hmm. is, right? Mm-hmm. We've all seen uh, law and order, and we know that when you when you do a crime, then you get arrested, and then you go to jail, and there's a total trial, and, um, and of course, all of that is way more nuanced in real life. Um, but is, but there the sound, <laughs> is there the sound effect? Exactly, yeah, there is not the same musical uh, soundtrack, but... Uh, <laughs> But so when we're talking about ordinances that quote-unquote criminalize homelessness, there are ordinances that do actually say if you do X, it's a criminal violation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times there are, it's a civil infraction rather, or um, a warning before you get a criminal violation or a warning before you get a civil infraction. But those effectively still, even if you're not directly the first time you see somebody um, like sleeping in public, you don't cite them with a criminal violation. Even if it's a civil infraction, it often has 
the outcome, the, a similar outcome. Mm. Um, and that's in part because a lot of times these citations uh, include, or if it's a civil infraction, they require you to pay a fine mm-hmm. for engaging in that behavior, right? But because it's a civil, uh, it's in the civil system, you aren't guaranteed access to an attorney. So you can't necessarily, you don't know whether you have a right to even challenge the underlying citation, um, and you don't have any way often to pay it, right, is the other problem. And then if you're living outside, um, and you're living in a city that doesn't allow you to necessarily stay in the same place, um, or even for other circumstances, you're constantly moving, you might not know where to pay the fine what you're supposed to do. You might not know if you have a court date, when that court date is, what court it is, or have a way to get there. Um, And so it ends up that people don't pay fines or they don't pay these fees, and then a warrant gets issued out for their arrest. So it's tipped from the civil into the criminal now? Exactly. And so even though uh, I think... I think there's there's been some um, suggestion by advocates that... In fact, actually, there's an intentional use of civil um, infractions instead of criminal violations because people don't get attorneys and can't challenge the underlying, or, or don't as frequently challenge the underlying violation. So even if, for example, they can get um, the fee waived, they're often, they're very unlikely to actually challenge the underlying reason as to why they got that citation in the first place. Um, but, in a, but, um, but, but yes, they over... It, uh, sorry, what was your question? Uh, it was about tipping tipping over into the right, and so exactly, and so it tips um, people into end up ending up in the criminal system, and then they have all of the collateral consequences that being in the criminal system has, right? That are sort of well accepted at this point, right? That it impedes people, but it's particularly. Uh, awful for people that are already in a really vulnerable um, and economically disadvantaged situation, right? So if you're in jail and now you can't go to, you can't go to your job, you can't do work, uh, your stuff is out there and nobody can watch it and you don't know what's going to happen to it. Um, You have a conviction now that if you want to get into a shelter, a sanctioned encampment, Mm. um, housing, that Mm. that could be a barrier for you to getting all the things that you're trying to get to um, make your situation better for yourself. Yeah, it seems like it's it's designing a system that continues a downward spiral rather than kind of lifting people up out of... Exactly, yeah. and we know that people that are, um, that there's, you know, people that when they leave jail or prison oftentimes don't have the support system either that they need in order to really thrive and um, successfully re-enter into society. And so it's just this perpetuating cycle that's not accomplishing anything except for wasting people's money um, and potentially violating people's rights. Hmm. Not an inconsiderable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, well maybe uh, to kind of close up our conversation, uh, I know you're not on the policy and advocacy side of the shop, but you did say that you, you talked to them. What what is ACLU's position about what cities should be doing and, and how they should be thinking about this issue? Yeah, I think that I would highly recommend uh, talking to our, our legislative and our policy deputy director. Um, and, I, and I think that they can probably provide a more comprehensive um, view about what we're doing. But I think that overall what I would suggest that cities do is one, talking to people that are actually living outside and that are unhoused. 
Um, I have heard so many creative and incredible solutions uh, from people that I've worked with over the past couple years that are really um, innovative and sound like they have the potential to work. Um, but also because they're the people that are actually experiencing it and that are at the end of these policies. And so uh, they're the most important people to be talking to, I think. Um, but secondly, I think focusing on what the problem is that we actually want to address, right? If our concern as a municipality uh, is that we want to stop people from having to um, go to the bathroom outside, what is it that we actually need to do in order to get that to happen? Um, if we want people to actually not be um, camping on public property, right, then how do we actually target that goal? And I think, you know, throwing away their stuff is not going to stop them from still needing a place to exist and a place to sleep. Mm -hmm. And so what I would recommend uh, that, that the, you know, that government entities do is looking at the problem that we're actually trying to uh, fix um, and that people aren't the problem. Rather, the problem is that they don't have money to get into housing, right? So the, it's, the housing crisis is the problem. Homeless people are not the problem. Thank you so much, Brianne, for sharing your perspective. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Dot com.